So in my household, my mother was the one who had the musical gene. Um, she grew up an Elvis fan, actually saw Elvis. Elvis actually gave her his scarf from the stage at the Veterans Auditorium in Des Moines, Iowa, when she was a young girl. And she said, she goes, next time I come back, this place will be full. And he, sure enough, he did. Next time he came back, it was full. So uh, she was the one who was really fascinated with rock and roll and singing the church choir and that kind of stuff. And she had some Motown records that I remember listening to, as well as a little single called uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. And that was really kind of my first you know, insight into music and, and probably hearing Neil Diamond on the radio. That was the kind of stuff that, that, that I, you know, my first things that I heard of, of music in my house. And it was interesting because my dad would get in the car, I would turn the radio up and he would turn it down. He was not a musical guy. He wanted to talk business. He was kind of more in his head. My mom was a little more kind of in the heart with music. And that was inspiring to me. Um, when I was about 10 years old, um, I had a my brother and I would get picked up. We lived on a farm in Minnesota. <clears throat> and so we had about an hour bus ride uh, into school uh, in the morning. And so uh, I remember the bus driver one year, he was the pastor's son, ironically, a long-haired guy, super cool guy named Dwight. And he uh, would listen to WLS AM out of Chicago. And at that time, WLS with a top 40 playlist, but they that was where I heard things like everything from Dan Fogelberg in Chicago to Bachman Turner Overdrive, Kiss Shouted Out Loud, Sticks, uh, Lady, Lorelei, um, uh, Sweet had just come out with Baldwin Blitz, Fox on the Run, these things, you know, Love is Like Oxygen, that kind of stuff. So that was what really got me into hard rock. And for some reason, the bass called out to me, and I'm not exactly sure why, other than I remember the... Uh, one of the first records that really got me into hard rock was the Bachman Turner Overdrive, Not Fragile album. And that was 1974. I was 10 years old. And the Beatles were gone. Um, Zeppelin, you know, was, was probably right in their prime. <clears throat> um, and I just remember opening that gatefold record, and there's Fred Turner with the big 4001 black and white Rickenbacker bass. And, I mean, that was, you know, defining for me. And I just went, I want to go do that. That looks cool. And so I love that record. And probably the next one that came after that would be Kiss Destroyer. And um, that album, you know, that, 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 that was, you know, these records, just looking at them, seeing pictures of rock stars on stage, this was an untouchable moment. These guys were superheroes to me. And, of course, Kiss took that to a whole other level. <clears throat> and so by about this time, you know, I'm going to the to the to in my town, it was like a like a pharmacy. It was like a drugstore that had like a little collection of vinyl, eight tracks, um, and you know there was Zeppelin, Presence, Kiss Alive, and Kiss Destroyer. There would be some Montrose records, um, Black Oak, Arkansas, Ten Years After, Ten uh, CC. These kind of things. These were the records that were there, and and I would also watch the Midnight Special, and that's that show. When you know, I remember Ronnie Montrose playing on that, seeing BTO on that, seeing Black Oak, Arkansas, uh, Stanley Clark, and these kind of things, and I mean uh, that that show was what I waited for. Um, probably the same way I stay up and watch Saturday Night Live now. <laughs> that show was the one that I that I that I just I waited for because rock and roll was very untouchable back then, and the only way you either had to see it on TV, see it in a magazine like in Circus Magazine. Um, rock scene magazine, uh, hit parader, um, 
and or you had to go to the show. And I lived on a farm. I was three hours outside of Minneapolis. So, I mean, I had the radio didn't even reach me really other than WLS, AM, and finally eventually a station in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So I worked on the farm. I mean, I picked rock, I walked beans, I'd drive tractors and stuff. We had a pretty big family farm operation. And eventually I would listen to this FM station out of uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. But it was mostly kind of top 40, you know, rock stuff. Um, and as I, you know, got, you know, Kiss, and then after that, I remember when the Boston record came out, it was just absolutely a game changer. Because again, sonically, that record, that first Boston record, was just something on a whole other level of, of soundscape. And then, of course, the first uh, Van Halen record came out. And, and you know, they, these were like, as soon as you needle dropped them and you heard the opening riffs of songs, I mean, these were life-changing moments for me. And um, I think after that, probably once the Judas Priest Unleashed in the East album hit my turntable, that was another, because by that time I'm probably about 15 years old, and just took my whole musical interest of things being heavy, great guitar playing, and just the power of, of what Judas Priest was doing was, you know, that was my first real introduction into proper British metal music. Um, and um, probably not long after that, then the new wave of British heavy metal with Iron Maiden, the first two Maiden records, and um, <clears throat> Motorhead. Ace of Spades, Bomber, live, uh, live at Hammersmith, No Sleep Till Hammersmith, and and then the first Def Leppard record, On Through the Night. And I think what was cool about Def Leppard is I think at that, I was 15, probably going on 16, and I think their drummer Rick Allen was 16. And and they were young kids, and they're like on Mercury Records, and the picture on the back, they're opening for ACDC, and I was like, wow, like this is, you know, my bands that I was in, I was like, this is, I can do this. Like these, Def Leppard brought it down to my age group where it's like, if these guys can do it and they're that young, I can do this. And really from there, I set my sights to move to LA, which over the next two years, <clears throat> the bands I was in and the bands I had around Minnesota was all angled at basically just getting my chops up so I could move to LA upon graduation, which I did. And moved into an apartment there and um, thought about plan B, maybe I'll go to, uh, MI, Musicians Institute, they had a uh, kind of a sub-school in there called Bass Institute of Technology, BIT. But I met Dave Mustaine, um, had not heard of Metallica, he was telling me about this band that he was in, and played me the No Life to Leather demo, and I just like, it was like, I mean, it was like, that was like the Unleashed in the East record, or the Maiden records, it was next level, it was like, wow, that that's freaking cool, this is what I came to Hollywood to do. And meanwhile, while Motley Crue and Rat and you know, the Sunset Strip bands, you know, Wasp and these guys had all gotten signed and were taking off. And the Us Festival had happened and Ozzy was getting his musicians out of L.A. So there's a lot of attention and focus on L.A. You know, for me, what I heard uh, Dave doing with Metallica, that's what I wanted to do. Um, and but when we formed the band, <clears throat> really it became a, a very open uh, blank canvas to create um, just kind of take everything that I learned as a, as a bass player and put it into that band and create a new sound, a new style as we wrote the early Megadeth songs. So I, I, when I moved to Hollywood in um, literally late May 1983, I meet Dave about a week later and I moved into an apartment, 1736 North Sycamore, still there I think. <clears throat> I moved into an apartment, he lived up above and uh, my buddy Greg and I, um, I we were practicing in the morning, I was playing as the story goes, it was something like running with the devil. <laughs> I was playing, I don't know if that was it or not, but um, 
that was the song that uh, you know Dave's roommate woke up and threw a flower pot down in her air conditioner and told us to shut up and you know and we're like ah, I think that's that long haired guy we saw walking around I think he lives up there and, and uh, so we uh, we went up and introduced ourselves you know buy some cigarettes buy some beer and um, we you know went down to the corner liquor store got a case of Heineken I'll never forget Dave walking with it you know and it's sandals and he's got it up over his shoulder and you know we're walking back he's telling us about this band Metallica and he had just come home from playing at Lemoore's and New York and <clears throat> all the stuff they had done in the Bay Area. And, and you know, Dave was, Dave, Dave's a great storyteller and he's very captivating, he's very charismatic. So we were all listening like, wow, you know, this is, this is what a great story. And, um, you know, but there was something about Dave. I mean, you know, in Hollywood, there's a lot of ulcerans and a lot of wannabes and lookalikes, but Dave was the real deal. And you could really sense it with him that like, okay, this guy's for real, this guy, he can write. He can. He and he can sell what he's doing. Like he is. He's got conviction, and I learned a lot of, from him about that. And so pretty quickly, I decided, okay, I'm not going to go to music school. So it was basically me, my friend Greg. Uh, Dave had a singer named Lore that he was working with, and we found a drummer named Dijon Carruthers, I think out of the Recycler, and that was the first sort of rehearsing. And I think we recorded a demo down at Lake Elsinore, where, uh, down by Dave, where Dave's mom lived. He had a buddy that had a tape machine, so we went down there and recorded uh, a demo of some songs. So really, that was the first working, you know, recording, demoing, writing lineup of the group. And now that would change over a few times um, before we actually recorded. Um, Carrie King from Slayer sat in with us for uh, two trips up to the Bay Area that we did and when we launched the band in February and April of 1984. But then shortly after that we got Gar Samuelson in on drums and his friend Chris Poland came in to play guitar and then that was the first recording lineup that we uh, got the There's really three record levels. There was Megaforce which had Metallica and Anthrax. Not a very good fit since Dave had just been let go from Metallica uh, what, as Metallica was signing to Megaforce. <clears throat> but um, the other one was Brian Slagle at Metal Blade. And then the third suitor, um, actually there was four. The third suitor would be Road Racer Records, which of course then became Roadrunner. Um, um, and we had a discussion with them. And then the fourth one was Combat Records. And we ended up going with Combat. They're out of uh, New York City, Jamaica, New York. Um, and that's, you know, those, that's what we recorded Killing Is My Business on, and, and we put that out. And the whole goal was to start with an indie, and there was a lot of indies that were, you know, chomping at the bit for Bailing Megadeth. So, you know, we, we, we went with Combat, and by album two, we, we'd done the work, we'd gotten the attention um, of Capitol Records and, and signed to them. And for album number two, P-Cells, we were finally on a major label. Seemed like a long time, but it was really only our second record and a, and a few years of work. And from there, all the big years happened. You know, I'm lucky because I'm in one of these bands that's, that has helped give people purpose, give them a reason for living, the reason that they do what they do um, in, a, in a period of time when I think that's one thing rock and roll does is it becomes a, we become a voice for a generation, just the same way those Van Halen and Kiss records and Priest records were for me. They were a voice that I felt I couldn't have, but they, by their, them writing those songs, they became my voice. And I'm very fortunate to be in a band like Megadeth that has also done that for an entire, you know, generations of fans. Now we're in our, you know, in our fourth decade of existence with the band. And, um, you know, so I think that's one of the, probably one of the greatest things to be able to leave behind 
is, um, you know, look, the gold records and the Grammy and all those things are awesome moments, but really to leave behind a legacy of work that has changed people's lives <clears throat> and given them something to really believe in so that they can be empowered to go out and fulfill their own life purpose, man, that is the ultimate power of music. Thank you.